Я вдячний генералу Залужному за два роки захисту. Я вдячний за кожну перемогу, яких ми досягли разом і завдяки усім українським воїнам, які героїчно витягують цю війну на собі. Відверто поговорили сьогодні про те, що потребує змін в армії. After months of behind-the-scenes tension and after days of intense speculation and rumors, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has fired General Valery Zaluzhny as chief of the country's armed forces. The dramatic moves comes at a particularly fraught time for Ukraine, with Russia attempting to seize the initiative on the battlefield and with U.S. defense aid to Ukraine stalled in Congress. So what does Zaluzhny's firing reveal about the politics of the war in Kyiv? And what does it portend going forward? Well, stick around because I got two great guests to help us break it all down. Hello from my makeshift office studio in Washington, D.C.'s trendy DuPont Circle neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington Dowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from across the Atlantic at beautiful St. Andrews, Scotland, is Sir B. Grudelia, an associate professor of political science at Baylor University, a close observer of Ukrainian affairs and author of numerous articles on Ukrainian politics and foreign policy. Welcome back to The Vertical, Sergey. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me. Good to have you. And joining us from Dallas, Texas, is the one and only David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of former U.S. President George W. Bush. David also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. These days, David serves as Executive Director of the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas. Welcome back to The Vertical, David. It's been a while. It has, Brian. Good to see you. Good to see you. So, so Zaluzhny, who is extremely popular in the Ukrainian armed forces, has been replaced by General Alexander Sirsky, the commander of Ukraine's ground forces since the start of the Russian invasion, and he is not popular. Uh, among the rank and file, at least according to the reports I'm reading. I wanted to start with the politics of why this happened and then move into the military aspects of this. And Sergei, I know you're, you're like, follow these politics very, very closely. There have been rumors of disagreements between these two over military matters, uh, including the decision to commit resources to the defense of Bakhmut and the decision to attempt a three-pronged counteroffensive this summer. Reportedly, Zaluzhny was opposed to both of those things. Zelensky was in favor. Uh, Z- Zelensky's also been clearly unhappy with Zaluzhny's blunt public pronouncements, most notably an interview and essay in The Economist late last year in which he said the war had reached a stalemate and there has been speculation unconfirmed that Zelensky is jealous of Zeluzhny's stratospheric population with the Ukrainian public. Sir, he, I had you on the podcast back in November um, when the discord between Zelensky and Zeluzhny was first becoming manifest in public, something you very cleverly at the time called the battle of disease. How do you interpret the politics of what just went down? So let me just first say that uh, we should all hope that there is no politics involved. And in fact, President Zelensky announced a new phase in the war. We know that Ukraine is moving into the position of what is called they call active defense, 
there have been statements about uh, a more high-tech element to the war that Ukraine will try to introduce in the coming months. And so from the standpoint of uh, the Ukrainian leadership, they may need new people who would be implementing this new phase of the military campaign. Um, and it makes sense that they may be looking for the new individuals who maybe will introduce some new methods in fighting the war. There is also no surprise that uh, General Sersky became uh, the new commander. He, in fact, as we know, was considered as uh, a commander uh, in 2001, as what well, was one of the candidates for the position, and ultimately Zelensky chose Zeluzny. Uh, he was also the uh, constantly part of the military effort of Ukraine since 2014. So he was leading the fight against uh, the Russians and against the proxy forces in Donbas for the last uh, seven years. So he's a very experienced military leader. And as we understand, you know, there is really no serious pushback from within the army against this change. At least we, we are not hearing any of the reports at this time. There are some questions that are posed by political leaders, but no pushback from within the institution. And it's very important. On the other hand, you are absolutely right that there are certain indications up until now that there may have been politics involved in the relationship. Some of that politics uh, is not fully clear because Zaluzhny never presented himself as a political figure. He never pretended as if he is interested in politics, in the political career. Yes, he was probably more public than uh, President Zelensky would have liked. Remember that he uh, was uh, the, the second Ukrainian who appeared on the cover of the Time magazine after uh, Zelensky. So, and he obviously gave interviews to international uh, reporters, foreign reporters. So he was very transparent, very uh, open, and that may have been produced some tensions within uh, the presidential office. There are also questions of trust towards Zelensky versus uh, Zaluzhny. But I think it's very premature to claim that this change is really politically motivated, primarily because we haven't heard from um, General Zaluzhny anything about his disagreement with this change. Uh, we know that he received an award of the Hero of Ukraine today from President Zelensky. And so it seems like the transition is going smoothly at this point in time. And this is the best we can hope for, uh, obviously, given the intensity of the ongoing military campaign. Yeah, no, and I mean, looking at how this went down, I mean, they both posted on their respective social media identical photos of them shaking hands. Zelensky thanks Zeluzhny for his service. But just knowing the backstory, Sergey, and we had, we again, we had talked about this back in November, that there was potential storm clouds on the horizon with this, the, the disagreements over Bakhmut, the disagreements over the nature of the counteroffensive. David, of course, in a democratic country, a president has the right to sack any general at any time for any reason. But nonetheless, many of us, and I include myself in this, view this firing as a mistake. At least that's my initial take on it. I was a big fan of Zaluzhny. Um, I liked his outside-the-box way of thinking. I know you have a different take on this. We discussed it a bit off mic. Uh, what's your take, David? How do you see this? Well, where, where we... Uh very much agree, Brian, is uh, praised was Zeluzhny and what he did in the first two years of, of the war, where I think he performed heroically, provided the necessary leadership. But you're right that I, I have believed that uh, President Zelensky as the commander in chief overall has the right to make 
changes in his military leadership. There's certainly precedent for this in many other countries. Uh, our own civil war with President Lincoln, um, firing of uh, removal of General uh, MacArthur by President Truman and others. And so it does mean that President Zelensky, if there were any doubt before, really does own the overall leadership of this military campaign from the Ukrainian side. I, I do think that it, this may have reflected a decline in confidence that President Zelensky had and confidence between a democratically elected president and his top military official is absolutely essential. And so to the extent that that may have been diminished, this perhaps is the right decision. You, you could argue about the timing of this, that this was not ideal timing, and I know we'll get to this later in the program, um, given the debate discussion in Washington, D.C. about the assistance package for Ukraine. But uh, there's never uh, an ideal time for these kinds of things, and they're better done sooner rather than later if, in fact, the, the president has lost confidence in his military official. I do think those photos, the same photos that they posted, that was an important signal that there doesn't seem to be, any, at least so far, any major political fallout as a result of this. And I think the appointment of Sirsky was the the right move. Uh, there had been speculation that Budanov yeah. was a possible candidate. I think he's doing a great job where he is, and it was probably better to leave him there and, and bring in Sirsky, given that with the defensive of Kiev was, was overseen by Sirsky, and he deserves a lot of credit for that. The military situation has been difficult for Ukraine, really, since last spring. The counteroffensive didn't live up to the hopes and expectations of many, most importantly of Ukrainians, but uh, many of us in the West. And it may be time to change horses and, and hope that the, the new rider can lead the way forward. Yeah, I mean, kind of, kind of echoing you. Know, I'll go to you in a sec, Sergey. I know you want to say something here. I mean, I cannot help it. It came right into my mind, and I started writing a piece about this. The contrast between how a civil military dispute developed in Ukraine right now, and where it's resolved in a kind of civilized, democratic way, and what happened in Russia seven months ago when you had a dispute at the top of the Russian armed forces um, that was resolved kind of like on an episode of The Sopranos. So, I mean, like, I think this is kind of, in a, in a nutshell, this kind of encapsulates Russia and Ukraine. So, hey, I'm sorry, you wanted to jump in here. Yes, and I very much hope that there will be no new season to The Sopranos. Uh, <laughs> not, not in Russia nor in Ukraine, but particularly in Ukraine. And here's what I wanted to add. Of course, we want to give the benefit of the doubt to President Zelensky and believe his public uh, justifications for the change from the military leadership. But if there is any political motive that is also present in his considerations, unfortunately, we may see it becoming more clear in the coming weeks or months. Because remember, President Zelensky made a very explicit offer for uh, Zaluzhny to remain within what he called a team of the Ukrainian state, meaning uh, taking some official position, uh, not necessarily within the military, but a political position that would uh, put him in a more subordinate position to President Zelensky, and in a way allow Zelensky to exercise a degree of control over Zaluzhny's actions. If Zaluzhny declines and decides to leave the, the state administration and public realm 
and join maybe go into some civic position civic uh, civil society or anything like that that may if there are any suspicions or jealousies generate additional suspicions on the part of the political leadership and we know that there have been speculations that there might have been some criminal cases opened against uh, Zaluzhny with regards to the beginning of the war. And so we know that, unfortunately, the use of criminal cases has been a, a very effective instrument in suppressing political opposition or political actors. If we see the attempts to start going after General Zaluzhny, after he leaves, withdraws from the government service, that would indicate that certainly political motivations were considerable, and that would certainly be very problematic as far as the future unity of within the Ukrainian society is concerned. If you're referring to what I think you're referring to, Serhi, and this is the very early stages of the war where Zeluzhny um, technically disobeyed orders, and the result was the defense of Kiev, right? And, and, and Ukraine's success early in the war. Um, if you're referring to that, that's going to backfire badly, and I hope to God we don't see anything like that. It's also my understanding that Zeluzhny was offered the ambassadorship to the United Kingdom. Um, I don't know if you've heard that. Um, he said, as you know, as an officer, he doesn't think it's proper to step down from his uh, post during wartime. Um, so everybody's saying the right things right now. David, you had something to say. To, to well, no, I just picking up on what Suhi was saying, because I think it's very important. Zelensky has to be aware that Zeluzhny is currently more popular than, than he Zelensky is. And so if he were to pursue some campaign against him, they could backfire on him very badly. I, I too share the hope that this is not politically driven. They're also human beings. And there is, I think, some natural competition, perhaps, given the readings of each of them. Of course, we're in a state right now where martial law is in place and Ukraine cannot hold elections according to Ukrainian law under martial law. So um, we're talking about a, a possible political campaign if it were to unfold developing in, in the future, not in the uh, near term, I would say. But uh, it is, I think, important that Zelensky understands this is a really big move. And I'm sure he did not take this step lightly. But it does mean that any blame that might have been placed on Zeluzhny, if he were to try to try that, is now going to be shifted much more on Zelensky than probably even on Sierski at this point. So it's a bold move. We'll have to wait and see if it pays off, if Sierski is up to the challenge in this next phase of the war. But I don't think it means the sky is falling. And I hope it doesn't mean a distraction that Ukraine does not need with political squabbling between the two. Yes, something I'm concerned about, and Sergei, I'd like to get your take on this because you follow Ukrainian society and Ukrainian politics really closely. Ukraine's superpower in this war over the last two years has been the resilience of Ukrainians in general. The society is united like I've never seen it before. I was just in Kyiv last spring planning another another trip next month. And do you see this fraying, the unity of Ukrainian society? Do you see this damaging the resilience of Ukrainian society? Well, so today we first saw the first protest, very small protest on Maidan, but a protest directed against President Zelensky. I think this may be the first protest during the active phase of the war since 2022 that was directed against the president. I also, based on the social media response of many Ukrainians to the 
dismissal of Zaluzhny, I also noticed the desire to express strong disagreements with Zelensky's judgment. And that, I think, is a change, because certainly there has been a desire on the part of the Ukrainians to, even if they disagreed with Zelensky on some issues, to avoid expressing this vocal opposition to the president. That was an exception. So the, the decision to dismiss Zelensky certainly opened up some cracks within the society. But as David also suggested, I agree with him, these cracks may not turn to be highly problematic and they, these wounds uh, may heal very quickly if we don't see attempts to go after Zaluzhny and if the transition goes smoothly. And so it very much depends on Zelensky, I think, on how that will turn out ultimately for him. Just building on what Serhii just said, this is a reminder Ukraine is a democracy. And so people actually are allowed to go out and voice their opinions on this issue. We've just seen this week that the so-called opposition candidate in Russia, who was opposed to the war, has been disqualified because the Central Election Commission declared that too many of his signatures were fraudulent. This this is further representative of the differences between Ukraine and Russia. Zeluzhny is a democratically elected leader. Uh, sorry, Zelensky is a democratically elected leader, and he does have to be responsive to the feelings and, and opinions of the Ukrainian people. And the Ukrainian people have a right to voice their views, particularly given the terrible sacrifices they have had to make in this war. And it speaks highly of Ukraine that people feel comfortable enough to say this was a mistake, if that's their view, or to say, good move, now let's focus back on, on the war at hand. Yeah, I mean, in this sense, and Serhii, this is something we discussed the last time I had you on the program, I mean, Ukraine's not just a democracy, it is a raucous, boisterous, sometimes chaotic, wonderfully chaotic democracy, and politics has been absent from Ukraine for the past couple of years, and the way those of us that follow Ukraine have become accustomed to this raucous, boisterous, wonderfully chaotic politics that this country has. And we have to wonder now, is, is politics returning? You're not going to keep politics out of Ukraine for too long, right? I wanted to move to the military aspect of this, because this is another concern I have on this. And I'm, I mean, you both are making me feel a lot better than, let's just say, I felt 24 hours ago about this. But moving to the military aspect of this, I mean, Zeluzhny was enormously popular with the Ukrainian armed forces, with the rank and file. By all accounts, he's an outside-the-box general who's kind of known for giving his officers a lot of latitude to take initiative. And many analysts said this was crucial to Ukraine's success early in the war. He's also enjoys enormous respect um, in the Pentagon and with Western defense establishments. Sierski, by contrast from what I've heard, correct me if I'm wrong, can seen as kind of a more old school general. Um, I've even heard his style described as Soviet. He's Russian born, which doesn't matter, but he's older. And he keeps his officers in a tight leash, according to what I'm reading. So, and he's also reported to be not too popular with the rank and file, most notably for the ill-fated decision to spend a lot of resources on the defense of Bakhmut. Uh, on the other hand, in his defense, he was also responsible for the surprisingly successful counteroffensive in Arkiv. So I'm just militarily, sir, he, how do you, how do you see this kind of affecting the war? It's a very, he's a very different type of general than than delusion he was. Well, he certainly is. And that may be one of the reasons why President Zelensky decided to make him 
a commander at this point in time. Remember, Ukraine is moving in at the stage of what Zelensky calls active defense. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, part of this term active is is not accidental. So you remember that Zaluzhny in his Economist article argued that there is a parity on the battlefield. And as a result, we are facing a stalemate. That was his assessment of the current situation on the ground. And Zelensky disagrees with this because it presumed or some conveyed a, a message that there can be no movement, that there can be no successful offensive operations conducted in the near future. And I think from the standpoint of Zelensky, this position of Zelensky presented a problem because Zelensky expected the Ukrainian armed forces still to continue pressing the Russians, pushing, finding an openings in the Russian defenses. And that is exactly what I think Sirsky can offer, because as you mentioned, the two most successful operations of the war have been led by Sirsky. And Zelensky in his statement actually emphasized it. Uh, and remember, Sirsky received a, a award of the Hero of Ukraine very early on in the war. In April of 2022, he was awarded for his successful defense of Kyiv. And then he led a very successful offensive operation in Kharkiv, in which, uh, according to a number of reports, his proposal was actually objected by Zaluzhny. Zaluzhny did not like this idea of, according to several reports, he did not like this idea of counteroffensive operation in Kharkiv. And ultimately, Sirsky's plan worked out. So I think that experience might have persuaded Zelensky that this that Sirsky's choice, even though, yes, he has the Soviet baggage, Yes, he's viewed as more of an old school general. And yes, he has this negative reputation of not choosing his uh, methods very uh, oftentimes uh, uh, very delicately. He still was the best person for the job that Zelensky went to perform. Yeah, I find it interesting. The, the views Illusion he expressed in that economist piece kind of track with my understanding of how the Pentagon and those advising Ukraine on this over here view things and it clearly Zelensky doesn't agree with that and this kind of brings me what I wanted to kind of ask David to weigh in on it's my understanding that our friends in the Pentagon uh, had enormous respect and a great working relationship with Zeluzhny I'm not sure what kind of a relationship they have with Sirsky do you see kind of the U.S. Ukrainian partnership on defense here suffering from this this transition I think I know what you're going to say but I I, I, I want to hear from you well, I think there's no question that Zeluzhny was held in very high regard, not just in the Pentagon, but throughout the U.S. government. That said, I, I think whether Zeluzhny had stayed in his position or now with Sirsky, all of this is going to depend on whether the West steps up and provides the military assistance Ukraine needs. If we do not do so, it won't matter whether Zeluzhny stayed or Sirsky takes over or Zelensky is president or anything else. Ukraine is in desperate need of Western assistance, military assistance. It is pulling back on its use of, of weapons and ammunition and, and missiles. Its air defense uh, capabilities are running low. So much rides in this war on the West right now. Ukraine has done 
everything it can. And it done so heroically. The Ukrainian people have just been an inspiration for everyone around the world. But we are the ones that I'm worried about right now. <laughs> I, I'm less worried about whether Sierski is going to do a better job at this point than Zaluzhny than I am about whether the United States in particular is going to step up and provide the assistance Ukraine needs. I think if the U.S. does, that will be a huge morale boost for the Ukrainians. Well, again, whether Sierski is there or Zaluzhny at stayed, it'll be a huge blow in morale for the Russians because the Russians are counting on the United States not to do the right thing. And so I, I think now the, this uh, change in military leadership is obviously important. I don't mean to minimize it, but right now the game is in Washington. And that's, I think, how this war is going to be determined more than anything mm -hmm. else. Well, all right. Anybody listening on the Hill, pass the damn supplemental, please. Um, and of course, we saw Vladimir Putin in his interview with Tucker Carlson this week, almost trolling the United States. Don't you have anything better to do than this? Why are you bothering with Ukraine? Um, Did you they, watch it, Brian? Because I can't bring I, myself to watch it. I can't. It. I haven't brought myself to watch it yet, um, but I, I, I'm sure I will eventually. I, I heard it was painful to watch. I heard Tucker Carlson couldn't get a word in edgewise, which is remarkable in and of itself, which might even make it worth watching. Um, David, you provided me here with a perfect segue be because uh, in a few moments, I wanted to continue our discussion and take a look at the war in the West, I mean, specifically the battle over Ukraine defense assistance in the U.S. Congress, which, which, which David referred to there and gave us the segue. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of products at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from across the Atlantic in beautiful St. Andrews, Scotland, is Sir Ecodelia. It's a long way from Dallas. An associate professor of political science at Baylor University, a close observer of Ukrainian affairs, and the author of numerous articles about Ukrainian politics and foreign policy. And joining us from Dallas, Texas, is the one and only David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of U.S. President George W. Bush. David's also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasia Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. These days, David serves as Executive Director of the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas. Ми цінуємо американське лідерство і його внесок у захист української незалежності і демократії від перших днів повномасштабної війни. Америка допомогла Україні вистояти у вирішальний момент. І зараз, у цьому році, Час війни не став простішим. So it looked a bit this week like the $600 million supplemental assistance package for Ukraine was dead on arrival in the U.S. Congress. Until, of course, it wasn't. The U.S. Senate on Thursday surprised the hell out of me and moved the aid package through a crucial procedural vote with a strong bipartisan majority. More than a dozen Republicans joined all Democrats. Now, this still has a way to go. Still has to get through the Senate. And then, of course, there is the case of the famously dysfunctional U.S. House of Representatives to consider where all good legislation seems to go to die. But in the wake of the European Union, managed to overcome Hungarian leader Viktor Orban's opposition to pass a more than 50 billion euro Ukrainian aid package, maybe, just maybe, we finally have some momentum here in the United States as well. 
David, I'm an optimist by nature. Am I getting ahead of my skis here? Well, I'm an optimist by nature too, Brian, but I think it's a little too early to get uh, too excited about this. Obviously, it helped that the Senate did move forward on a procedural motion with 17 Republican members in support of considering the bill that now has been stripped of the border security component. Um, but there's still a ways to go. And Senator Schumer, the majority leader, has indicated he's going to keep the Senate until it uh, passes this bill. But then, as you were indicating, the, the bigger challenge will be in the House. All along in this process, the expectation was that the House would be more problematic than the Senate. The Senate, however, for the past few months has shown that it is not a cakewalk there either. And uh, the debate in the United States, just to be clear, has been about the border issue. There aren't that many members of Congress who are opposed to providing assistance to Ukraine. There are quite a few members of Congress who do not want to provide assistance to Ukraine unless we also provide uh, assistance and more funding and some policy change on the border. So this is more about debate and disagreement over the border than it is about assistance to Ukraine. The complication, however, is the Israel assistance package uh, has some opposition in the House side on the Democratic side, uh, where there are some on the progressive part who don't feel that they should vote in support of Israel in light of its military approach dealing with, with the situation in Gaza. Uh, the, the biggest question, if the Senate approves this, will be whether the Speaker uh, brings it before the full House or whether there is a discharge petition, which is another way to get it on the floor of the House. But I'll just say it's painful for someone like me sitting in Dallas to watch all this unfold. I can't even imagine what it is like for Ukrainians, particularly Ukrainians on the front lines, to see that the problem they're facing right now, yes, certainly is continues to be the Russians, but it's also this dilatory approach on the part of the Americans. We've got to get our act together. We have to do it immediately. The Ukrainians desperately need this assistance. And I actually think it's not an overstatement to say it can be the difference between Ukrainian victory and Ukrainian defeat. Ukrainians will keep fighting no matter what, but uh, unless we're going to leave them with just shovels and, and uh, handguns to fight with, we've got to provide them the military assistance they need in order to win this war. Yeah, no, David, you mentioned the border. I mean, I have to wonder, is this really about the border? Because basically the, the Biden administration gave the Republicans pretty much everything they wanted, and that still wasn't enough. So I wonder if they don't want the issue of the border and not a solution to the issue of the border. Sir, he, I wanted to kind of come to you about how this does, because David alluded to this, how this looks to Ukrainians. Because by most accounts I'm reading, they say that Ukraine can hold out for several months at best with what they got right now. Air defenses might be uh, in trouble next month if we don't step it up a little bit. So by the second half of, la of, of this year, things could get really, really bleak, really, really fast. I, I was really struck by a quote from the defense analyst, Michael Kaufman, who's a, a friend of all of ours, a frequent guest on this podcast in the New York Times. Michael said the following, Ukraine could effectively hold for some part of this year without more American military aid, but over time, there would be no prospect to rebuild the military and they will start to lose slowly. Those words kind of sent a chill up my spine. I know how serious a defense analyst David is. How does this look to Ukrainians? 
So I have to say, at the beginning of this debate, sometime in the fall, there was very little doubt among Ukrainians that uh, ultimately the aid will be passed. Uh, it was viewed overwhelmingly as a, just a temporary problem, just a temporary holdup, something political that will be very quickly resolved. Uh, and so I think initially many Ukrainians, analysts, government officials underestimated the seriousness of the problem. And they uh, did not quite understand the drivers behind uh, this holdup. And uh, some, I think, viewed it as uh, technical drivers related to the issues of the border, the specific regulations about border controls. They thought that additional uh, political uh, appeals, the appearance of Zelensky in Washington, D.C., of Yermak, he made two visits to Washington, D.C. last fall, that may uh, resolve the problem, but it did not. And I think they, especially after Zelensky's visit, it became very clear that there is a very significant faction in the House that has been growing since 2022. In 22, remember, there were some members of the House who expressed their disagreements with Zelensky openly. They did refuse to stand up when he appeared in at the joint session of Congress. But there were just very few of them. Now you have hundreds, over the hundred members who are openly criticizing Zelensky, and you have a bunch of senators who are also openly articulating quite uh, uh, defeatist attitudes. The arguments that we suddenly need to accept the, the, the loss of territories uh, to Russia and negotiate immediately. I mean, that's something unimaginable, uh, just 2022. So I think we are dealing with a much deeper problem where a, a large faction of uh, members of the Republican Party, mainly right now, are willing to stop the pr pr provision of aid, not just because they want something else, but on the merits of this issue. And hence, it is very difficult to understand how the Ukrainian government can resolve this problem. It's it's really something that needs to be resolved within the United States yeah. through a mastery, maybe, or political mastery of political leaders here who may find some technical ways to resolve it, or alliance building. And we've seen the first instance of that alliance building yesterday when Republican senators joined Democratic senators in this vote to start considering this bill. But I would also want to uh, emphasize that there are no defeatist attitudes. So everything I hear from Ukraine is a confidence that no matter what happens in the United States, we will keep on fighting. And if not from America, but we'll find the necessary tools, the necessary weaponry from somewhere else. The Europeans may help us. Other countries will step step in. So there is no gloom and doom uh, uh, at this point within the Ukrainian society. Yeah, I think it's worth mentioning. The Europeans have actually given more more aid to Ukraine than the United States has at this point. Uh, that's something that's not that needs to be said as much as possible. Um, I want to move to some of the alternatives in the you know in the event that God forbid this 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 doesn't pass eventually. But first, I want to kind of go to David because Sergey, you kind of said the the, the important thing here is that the, there's nothing Ukrainians could do to to fix our dysfunctional politics here in Washington. This is this is ours. We we got to fix this. Uh, David, how did this become so partisan in your view? 
I mean, this is a head scratcher for me. I mean, I'm, you know, I, when I was growing up and then when you were too, the Republicans were the hawkish party that wanted to fight the Russians and the, the, the Democrats were the peaceniks. And how did this turn into such a partisan issue? Tucker Carlson in Moscow yesterday interviewing Putin. Sir, he noted up to almost 100 members of Congress who are going to re- reluctant to, to give Ukraine what it needs to defend itself. This is Ronald Reagan's Republican Party, or it's not really Ronald Reagan's Republican Party anymore. How do you, how do you explain this? Yeah, it's definitely not Ronald Reagan's Republican Party anymore, I think, Brian. But it is everything's politicized these days. This, I can't think of an issue, really, that maybe some support for COVID recovery. But other than that, there hasn't been much where there's been wide bipartisan support in Congress these days. And there's some blame on, on the administration side for this. It wasn't until October after the Hamas terrorist attack against Israel that President Biden addressed the American people and explained why supporting Ukraine was in the U.S. national interest. But he did it only because of the attack on Israel. He had not done so since February of 2022. He gave a speech in Warsaw and elsewhere. Last I checked, those are not in the United States. And so there was, I think, a failure on the administration's part to explain to the American people, as well as to members of Congress, what its strategy was, as long as it takes, is not a strategy. And and so there were several members, Republican members in the House, who put forward a strategy in the absence of the administration's willingness to articulate what that strategy was. Some key chairs in the House have been very supportive of Ukraine. McCall and, and, and Rogers, Turner and others, um, that's important. But there have been other members who have fallen prey to Kremlin propaganda that gets parroted by some Western, including American commentators. And it is pretty disgraceful, in my view, that Ukraine can't win, that Ukraine is a hopelessly corrupt country, that we have bigger fish to fry in the world, that we're taking our eye off the ball with China. And then, of course, after October 7th, we need to be focusing on the Middle East. But then there's another component to this, which is those who have been pushing for a ceasefire. And I've been critical of them uh, ever since I've been hearing these proposals by people sitting in the United States, mostly more than uh, Europe, saying, well, Ukraine should sacrifice its territory and its people in order to satisfy Putin. Uh, Easy for an American to say, to consign millions of Ukrainians to live under brutal Russian repression under forces who have committed war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide against the Ukrainian people. Easy for them to say that Ukraine should give up its territory, even though the vast majority of Ukrainians oppose that kind of approach. And so those who have been pushing for a ceasefire in the United States, I think, have done a disservice because they have fed this notion that there is no victory possible for Ukraine, when in fact, I think there is. Indeed, I would argue it's the only way to end this war. Uh, to help the Ukrainians to victory, to defeat Russian forces. And by that, I define it as driving every Russian occupying soldier off of Ukrainian territory. And of course, that includes Crimea, um, holding Russia accountable for the war crimes, and then uh, uh, not just freezing, but seizing Russian assets. I think that too, the administration has been dragging its feet on this between the United States and and our allies is $300 billion sitting there. It won't absolve us of the responsibility of passing 
the $60 billion in assistance that Ukraine needs. But boy, it sure would help in uh, with Ukraine's recovery. And, and it's just unconscionable to me to think that people would uh, support returning those funds to Russia whenever the war might end. Uh, Russia caused all this. It needs to pay the price for it. And those funds are a great place to start. Yeah, and uh, David, I would say that a lot of those calling for the ceasefire are coming from the left of our of our political spectrum. The uh, the kind of the progressive caucus in 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 the, in the not, house. Not only Brian, there have been people associated uh, with the Council on Foreign Relations, Richard Haas, yeah. uh, Charlie yeah. Kupchin, Tom Graham. Uh, I, I think they have done a disservice to Ukraine, and, and they do seem very willing and open to talk to Russians. I'm not sure of any Ukrainians they've spoken to about their. That terrible ideas. Yeah, no old habits die die hard there. And also those that say we have bigger fish to fry, what is a bigger fish than the largest land war in Europe since the Second World War? I would like to ask them. David, you raised the the issue of uh of Republic of, of uh, Russian assets. Um and this is someplace this is someplace I, I did kind of want to end up because this has been in the back of my mind, the middle of my mind, and the front of my mind at various points in this for various reasons. The assumption always with the Russian assets is that if we seized them, they would be used for reconstruction. And there's precedent for this. The first Gulf War, the Iranian assets were seized um, and used in the, in the in the rebuilding of Kuwait. But Iraqi, I'm thinking- Iraqi, not Iranian. Iraqi, I'm sorry. Yeah, Iraqi spoke. Um, I've been thinking about this like, can't those assets be used to give Ukraine defense assistance? I can think of nothing more beautiful. I can think of no more karm better karmic justice than to seize the assets of Russian oligarchs and give it to Ukraine to defend themselves, to use as they see fit for their own defense. And we're talking about $300 billion, which is five times the amount of that supplemental that is before the U.S. Congress right now. If we can seize it to give Ukraine for recovery, can't we seize it and give it to Ukraine for defense assistance? Or am I like really barking up the wrong tree here? David? I, I, I would support that. I, I, I don't think we should impose limits on what that money could be used for, but it, it should not remove the responsibility we have to provide Ukraine with the assistance it needs. I have to say, when I hear the term Ukraine fatigue, it drives me crazy. Yeah, it drives me crazy. Too. What are we tired from? Because we're, we, by we, I mean Americans, we're not on the front lines fighting and dying every single day as a result of Russia's onslaught. No one is more tired and sick and fed up with this war than Ukrainians are. Nobody wants this war to end sooner than Ukrainians, but they want to make sure they win so that this does not happen again. The least we could do is to provide our weapons. They're not asking for our soldiers to go fight this fight for them, although there have been a fair number of Americans who have volunteered on their own, not sent by the Pentagon. It's not some uh, official effort. but. There are enough people motivated by uh, the inspiring examples set by Ukrainians to go join them and fight. So to me, the, the, the main thing is we have to do our job, which is continue to provide the military assistance, seize those Russian assets, let the Ukrainians determine how to, how to use them and spend them and go from there. Uh, so I saw you smiling. Uh, when I was uh, talking about this beautiful karmic uh, justice of seizing Russian oligarch assets and giving $300 billion 
dollars to Ukraine for its uh, defense assistance, or at least some of that. How is this viewed? Is this something Ukrainians are talking about? Is this something that's being taken seriously? I mean, it's, I know there are complicated issues in, in the legality of this. There are concerns about the kind of the the assets being safe. Most of them are are in Europe and not in the United States. But nevertheless, how are Ukrainians? Well, there certainly have been uh, a very significant push for this exact uh, decision on the part of the Ukrainian government on the part of the uh, civil society activists. There are a number of uh, papers and articles published uh, that advocate for exactly uh, this. So I think it certainly is something that we would expect to happen very soon. The problem, of course, is that we are facing a political calendar. And that political calendar tells us that something needs to be done very quickly in order for us to have a realistic expectation that uh, that these uh, these funds would be released. Otherwise, if we get closer to the fall of this year, um, this decision, as David mentioned, everything is politicized now in the United States, will be hugely politicized. And yes, uh, unfortunately, the other side uh, let's call them the Ukraine skeptics or Ukraine deniers, will find a reason to say why this would be a problem, why this kind of a decision would be a problem. And yes, unfortunately, I don't think the other candidate uh, of Donald Trump, a likely presumptuous nominee of the Republican Party, is likely to support this, at least um, that we don't see any indications that this is going to happen. So if this, uh, if this is, uh, if, if we have a realistic shot at it, it's only in the next several months. Yeah. And there's a lot of kind of bridges we have to cross here. Most of those assets are in Europe, not the United States. We got to get the allies on board, number one. Number two, as, as, as people in Treasury have pointed out to me, this is doable and this is doable legally. But there's a lot of legal I's and that have to be dotted and legal T's that have to be crossed before we before we do so. But it is doable. And how this money is used, I mean, it's always been talked about as reconstruction. I always thought, why uh, why not defense aid too? We're pushing up against the end. I just kind of wanted to bring the program full circle. Uh, we started talking about the the political turbulence in Kiev. The Battle of the Z's. We finished talking about the political dysfunction here in Washington and, and o, o, over the Ukraine supplemental. Does the does what just happened in Kiev? Does that give fodder to those here who would prefer to just wash their hands of this this issue? Does this add to the kind of political problem here? What do you think, Sergey? How do you see that? Um, absolutely, and we've heard already allegations or claims um, from the Ukraine skeptic side that it's something of a soft coup, that it's a reflection of a chaos in Ukraine, etc. And that's why the discussions like this are, are crucial, uh, because right. we have to explain that there is no coup, there is no destabilization, right. and that in fact things will go on very smoothly forward, and some, everything has been done legally. And uh, in fact, the Ukrainian state, that may be a demonstration of uh, the uh, strength of the Ukrainian state, that the one commander uh, was replaced with another one in the middle of the war. And it's, uh, it's a the smooth sky didn't fall. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. There was nobody. Nobody was marching on Kiev. Uh, nobody's getting assassinated. You know, there's there's no uh, there's no mutiny, no rebellion. And that stands in stark contrast to, to Russia, of course, which I really do think sums it up. David, you get the last word. In 2022, there were 
a lot of analysts and experts and even officials in the West who are saying uh, a Russian invasion will be over in days, that Ukrainian government will be removed and replaced and Russia will occupy Ukraine. That was wrong, um, in large part because we viewed the situation through a Russia prism rather than thinking about Ukraine. I think we all should have a little more confidence in the Ukrainians. They deserve it. They've shown good reason for us to have it in them. And I think as long as we provide the assistance they need, there will continue to be good reason to think that the Ukrainians will be able to pull this out at horrible costs. The, the toll on Ukraine and Ukrainians has been absolutely appalling. But they are determined to fight. They're fighting for their land, for their freedom, and for their lives. Let's help them to victory. And I think we will discover the next time, say a year from now, we do this, that the situation will look more hopeful. Yeah, from your lips to uh, to God's ears. Um, unfortunately, Slava that's Slava Ukraine. That's all we have time for today. Um, I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from across the Atlantic and beautiful St. Andrews, Scotland, has been Sergei Gudelia an associate professor of political science at Baylor University and a close observer of Ukrainian affairs and author of numerous articles on Ukrainian politics and foreign policy. And joining us from Dallas, Texas, has been the one and only David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of former U.S. President George W. Bush. David also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. These days, David serves as the executive director of the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. You can follow us on the platform, formerly known as the Twitter, at Power Vertical. You can also follow us on Threads and Blue Sky at Power Vertical. And you can subscribe to the Power Vertical's brand new Substack at brianwhitmore.com substack.com. Thank you both for an enlightening discussion and making us all a lot smarter. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Uh, thank, you, like thank, Thanks, thank you, Brian. Thank you. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Jareer Rahman is ably filling in for Lance Ligas in the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and working on our throughout our discussion. Jareer also handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. Join us again next week, and until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.